about that. But there we go. Um, so this morning, uh, if you're just now joining us, uh, we are in the book of Mark. Uh, and what we've really been doing is we've been exploring some highlights uh, over the book. So we've been going through the entire book, but we've been looking at various aspects of Jesus's life, which Mark records very honestly and sort of like upfront. Like there's not a whole lot of I don't know what you call it, like theological fluff for Mark. Like he kind of drives straight to the point. The Mark, the Gospel of Mark is one of the earliest Gospels written. So there's four accounts um, of Jesus' life in your Bibles. Uh, and Mark was the one that was written earliest and kind of um, before they, even as like the church was wrestling with who was Jesus and what does he mean for us and how do we live? Like Mark wrote kind of his first gospel as a way to launch the church and launch early Christians into their understanding of who Jesus is. Uh, and so this morning, um, we're going to be in what is, I actually think, the pinnacle of Mark. Uh, and it's not going to be at the end of Mark. So m- most of your, many books in your Bible, you may not know this, uh, and we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about this, but many of your books are written where um, in the ancient world, with the style that they would write, they would write what we call chiastically, meaning the, the like, heart of the book was often sometimes embedded in the middle of the book. Now, this is counterintuitive for us because most of us, when we watch movies or, or we read books, we kind of wait till the end to get the conclusion, right? When you're watching a good movie, like the movie keeps you hanging on until you get to the end of the movie, right? Like we get mad if somebody spoils the end too quickly. But for Mark, uh, because he's, he's Jewish, he's writing as a Jewish writer, uh, they would write chiastically, meaning that it often embedded the, the pinnacle or the climax of the book kind of right in the middle. And what they would do is if you think of it like a mountaintop, like you had all of this stuff sort of leading up to the, the conclusion explaining it. And then after we'd kind of seen like the heart of what Mark's trying to communicate, the rest of the book starts to communicate that as well. Um, but both sides kind of lead up to this thing that Mark is explaining. And so Mark is 16 chapters, and kind of right in the middle of these 16 chapters, Jesus starts talking about his death. He starts talking about his purpose, which was to come and to die. But one of the things that we sometimes miss, that I'm fearful we miss with with what Jesus is saying here, and what Mark's going to help us see and wrestle with this morning, uh, is the humility of God. This path at which God loves us is a path of humility. So, so when I, if I were to ask you to describe God, I'm not putting any of y'all on the spot, I, I, most of us would not say humble. Like, that wouldn't be like the characteristic. We might say like he's glorious or he's righteous or right, like he's powerful, he's the creator of all things. These things are true and right. However, I want us to always understand these things in the context of his humility. God is a humble God who stoops down to lift those who are lowly, to lift those who need it, to lift those uh, that, that, that feel outside. What God is is a humble God. This is his defining, I believe, like his defining characteristic, one of the defining things about his love. And so Mark will spend chapters 7, 8, and 9, kind of right in the middle of his book, expanding on and helping us wrestle with what does the humility of God look like? 
Because I think if we grab this, just pastorally, if I can, for a second. So we, we've, been in some, we've been in a lot of um, John's kind of hard-hitting statements over the last couple of weeks. Uh, and this one, I really want to walk us through pastorally some things. But I think for many of us, when we picture meeting God someday, most of us kind of have this picture of like, I'm going to meet this righteous God, this holy God, this powerful God, who's going to look at me and be like, shame on you. Right? He's going to look at all of my inadequacies, all of my failures, all of my sins. And like, I know he's going to love me, but like, I don't know how that interaction is going to go. And what I want to do this morning is I want us to stop for just a second. And imagine that moment being this moment where you experience his humbleness and his meekness, and his gentleness, even towards the parts of your life that you are most ashamed of, that you don't really want to talk about, that you kind of hope he doesn't see. In those moments, because this is what we're going to be in in the text this morning, is Jesus is going to address his disciples while they're all being kind of major dorks. Like, they're, they're, they're going to actually show some of their ugly side here, which I think is reflective of our ugly side sometimes. And he's going to come at this with humility. And he's going to come at them with gentleness. He's going to come at them and help them see, like, the purpose of his love, how he loves, and it's through humility. And it's through humility that even in this moment, in this conversations that they're going to have, He's going to show real gentleness to them. So let, let me um, read the text for us, then pray, and then we'll get started. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9. The words will be behind me on the screen. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 30. They left the place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt just quickly there. Translation nerd moment. Like uh, Sometimes we translate Son of Man. I think that's appropriate. But Jesus is actually, the word he's using, is, is he's accentuating his humanity here. And the reason I'm stopping us is because this is part of the humility of God. He, he says the human one, me, he's talking about himself in third person, but the, the frail one, the human one, is going to be delivered into the hands of other humans. And they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Let me pray for us. Father, for these next few minutes, um, while we wrestle with humility, um, Father, can I just first just confess um, like how foreign this is to me, how much I resist it, how much I want to manipulate my way around it, 
Father, for the ways that my own heart is resistant to humbly loving others, to submitting myself to them. Father, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us for all the ways that we claw and scratch and defend and hide so that we can be the greatest? Would you help us to be like you? Jesus, we need you. Would you help us cling to you? Would you help us worship you by learning to be humble like you are? and learning to love others in that humility. Would you help us to submit ourselves, even to our enemies, so that we could be like you, Father? We could glorify you. We need you, Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so um, one of the things that I want to point out here quickly pastorally as well is um, they start out this conversation. Jesus says the human one will be delivered into the hands of humans. The God of the universe, right? So all of the things that we ascribe to God, this glorious God, the one who created all things, the one who holds all things, Jesus, who created these humans, has become a frail human and is now submitting himself into their hands. And so our translators um, want to use the term son of man. I don't think that's a bad term, but I think we kind of miss some of that because it sounds very religious and it sounds sort of um, like he's, he's trying to give himself a title. But really, um, if I could translate this almost just like bare bones, it's the human one is being turned over to other humans. The frail one, the weak one, he's being turned over to these other humans who are going to exalt themselves over him, that are going to place themselves over him, that are going to take control over him. They're going to shame him. They're going to respond in violence towards him. They're going to kill him. The human one. Why this is so important, and at Restore, we, 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 we worship Jesus as both fully God and fully human. This is part of our doctrine. But I think for many of us, when we come to worship Jesus, we often want to, like, we kind of slide over on the, like, the divine side, which is appropriate and good and right. Like, let's not, like, do that because he was 100% God. He was fully God. But we often, I think, sometimes miss the fact that he was also fully human. And that this part of him deserves our worship just as much as this part does. They're not two separate parts, right? They're mused. I'm, I'm trying to break things down in ways that are hard to break down. But when we think of the way that we worship Jesus, one of the things we're worshiping is his humility. The human one who came and submitted to other humans for the sake of his enemies who didn't respond in violence, who didn't respond uh, in, in the ways that you would expect someone to respond when they're submitting to someone who is literally, they know, is going to wrong them, harm them, grieve them. But instead, in meekness, he submits to them. And so, as I said, this is written in the middle of Mark's gospel. And so what he's trying to do now is he's trying to help us understand the crucifixion. Jesus, both fully God and fully human, came. And for us, this might feel a little bit like I've heard this before. But for the ancient world, uh, this was like the hardest thing to really wrestle with. 
the hardest idea that God, who is sovereign and mighty and powerful, would come as a human and do all the things that humans do, have all the needs that humans have. Like this, would have, this, was, an, this was actually, the early church wrestled with this. It was almost embarrassing for them in many ways. Like if you were trying to spread the gospel to your friends, like this was the part that they would have felt resistance to. That's not the place of God's. That's not what God's do. God's don't in, in humility and in meekness submit themselves to you and me. But this is exactly the picture that Jesus of, of Jesus that Mark is painting, of one of humble submission. So he explains that they will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him. So pastorally, one of the things that I think, uh, like, I think this characterizes for many of us our relationship with God. When we think of the way that God loves us and the way that he's calling us to love others, I think that this idea of, be, like, I think we're afraid of God's humility. Like, I think we're afraid of the ways that God both submits himself to us, but then also the ways that he has called us to give up of ourselves for others. And I think when they're afraid to ask, I think it's because they're starting to grab just a little bit of, wait a second, maybe this journey that I'm on with Jesus isn't one where I'm like, maybe this isn't like upward mobility for me. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is calling us to redefine everything we thought about love and self-preservation and the ways that we follow him, this idea that they're going to kill him and then he's going to raise in three days like they're afraid to ask. I think for many of us, we're afraid sometimes of the ways that God's actually loving us and the ways that he's called us to love others. But who are we if not but people who wrestle with God? Like look at the, like, look at the gentleness that Jesus has in this. Like he's, he's kind of just said, I'm going to show you like the path to true love and everybody's like, I don't, I don't, wanna ask, I don't want more details. Right? Like, I don't, I don't want to know more than you've already told me. But this is precisely, I believe, where pastorally and spiritually many of us wrestle with God without even realizing this is where we're wrestling with, with God. What does the humility of your love look like for me? The gentleness that you have for me. The ways that you've brought me in to your life. Just stop and think about that for a second. God invites you into his existence in a way that like he needs you. All four gospel writers do this, by the way. They at different times show Jesus' humanity, like they show him getting thirsty and somebody needing to get him water. They show him being like lonely in the Garden of Gethsemane, like and scared and needing his disciples and his friends to be with him. Like there's this need that God actually has, this desire for you. And I truly believe this makes us a little uncomfortable. I truly believe like we're still wrestling with this idea that God in meekness and in humility would need me in that kind of way, would long for my presence in that kind of way, would invite me into his existence in this kind of way. And I think this is precisely where many of us spend most of our time wrestling with God and what he's doing in our life. 
So then he says, they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? So Mark doesn't tell us uh, a whole lot of details about the argument. Some of the other Gospels do include it. Matthew includes it. Um, but he does tell us what, what they were really arguing about at the end. But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. And they're embarrassed by it. Because they had just had this conversation about real, like Jesus is loving them through this path of submission and humility. And now, the, the, like preceding that conversation, the first thing they do is get into an argument with each other about who is the greatest. Okay, so, so I want to stop us here for just a minute. Um, I believe that this is, at, at our core, our primary spiritual entanglement, spiritual wrestling that many of us have. We might not word it in that way, right? You might not go to when you're having a conflict with your spouse and be like, I'm the greatest here. Like you need to, you need to be on my side. But most of our conflicts with one another, most of our like insecurities that we harbor, we're actually asking this kind of question, like who am I in my standing in relation to everyone else around me? Am I less than? Am I less than? Am I less than? Are they, are they taking advantage of me? Are they manipulating? Right? Oh, so many of our conflicts, even in marriage, if you think about it, um, at its core are this, like, I'm doing more than you. I'm pulling more weight than you. Like, right? like, I'm, I, like all of us have these kinds of arguments, and they're centered around this idea of, like, who's greatest? For those of us who often wrestle with, with like real low self-esteem, this is even a question that we're asking. Sometimes when, when we are disappointed in ourselves, right, one of the questions we're kind of asking is like, I should be better than that. I shouldn't have, right? I should have, I should have known better. And so like sometimes our pride gets mixed in with some of our self-loathing. And I'm not saying that if there's real areas where we have issues with our self-esteem that we wouldn't want to wrestle with that and find a good counselor and find healing for that. But I would argue that a lot of our self-loathing, for those of us who struggle with that, like that self-hatred, sometimes that self-loathing that we have towards ourselves is because we feel like we're disappointing ourselves. We're not all that we could be. And we feel like because of that, like I hate myself. God, I hate the weaknesses that I have. I hate the insecurities that I have. I hate the vulnerabilities that I have. I shouldn't have these. Like, shame on me. Shame on me. You know, there's, um, there's actually quite a bit of, of, of research to back this up, but what... what uh, they have found with healthy companies, like companies that you work at that are, that are good, like healthy work environments where people are productive and like things are going well. What they have found um, when doing some research, and I'm, I wish I could quote the professor's name. If you really want it, I can find it to you this week. I just finished one of his books. Um, I'm terrible at remembering authors' names. But what they have found is companies, like, the, like healthy companies from unhealthy companies, there was something, there was a distinguishing factor that they found. Jim Collins was one of the guys who did this study. Um, he wrote Good to Great, a couple other really popular business books. But one of the things that they found in companies that were successful and healthy and good and productive was they found that there was this dominating idea that when you could, as a company, if you could get your employees to forget about managing their statuses, 
Everybody else, everybody was happier, healthier, and more productive. Companies who held the position that managing status is a waste of time somehow figured out a way to actually have healthier conflict, have healthier production, like be a healthier, wholer company. I believe this translates to church. When we as a church can figure out how to stop being so concerned with status and managing status, like we can find real connection and health with one another. But I think for many of us, whether, whether we're right in that space of um, I really hate myself and I wish I could be better or, or we're in that space of like, I feel like everybody around me should treat me better than they are. And like, there's real conversations let's have about like boundaries and, and like where we are with like, so, so I want us to have like healthy discernment as we navigate that. Let's have a good counselor. Like let's have good friends around us that we trust that can help give us good feedback and all of those things. I don't ever want us to voluntarily submit ourselves into a situation where we're being mistreated. That's not what I'm arguing about or for this morning. But I do think this innately inside each of us, we are wired to wrestle with, am I the greatest? And I think we do it in our marriages. I think we do it in our friendships. I think we do it at church. I think we do it at work. Like we're wired in this way. Where do I stand with everyone else around me? Am I more successful than them or less successful than them? Do I have better behaved children than them or less behaved children than them? Have I voted for better politicians than them or less better politicians? Like every single one of us, like our defensiveness, our unguardedness towards one another often comes from this idea of being concerned with where we are status-wise. And what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do is to begin to consider that the path towards loving the way that he loves, towards humility in the ways that he is humble, begins with giving up this preoccupation with themselves. And in submission, and in vulnerability. You know, interestingly enough, vulnerability, um, as, as we're getting ready, uh, I'll ask you, tell you guys more about that later, but asking y'all to, to pray for us, making Lindsay and Johnny go on a retreat this um, weekend as a staff. We're going to pray about what kind of church we're going to be this fall, like as we think about our values. Um, but one of the values, I'm getting ready to post them on here. So unless you've been to our website, you may not even know them. We have three. We have Jesus, grace, and friendship. These are the three things that I want us always to be defined as as a church. One, I want us to cling to Jesus. As we said, we cling to Jesus. We worship Jesus. Like he is the reason that we gather. Until we, don't, until we know him, nothing else matters. But the reason we cling to Jesus is because we can begin to accept that Jesus has, or we begin to um, be okay with the idea that Jesus has accepted us fully. We can become, we can get peace at ourselves because Jesus has accepted us and loved us and forgiven us and showered us with grace. Like there can be real inner peace with ourselves when we have a real encounter with the living Jesus. And when that happens, that gives us space to then be less concerned about status and more about how do I pursue the good of others. So our second status we define as grace is we want to give each other better than we deserve. 
better than is deserved, because this is what grace is. God has given me far better than I deserve in Jesus, so let me be committed to then giving what is better than deserved for those around me, even my enemies, even the ones that like bother me, even the ones that backstab me, even the ones that like don't acknowledge me in the way that I want, respect me in the way that I want, care about me in the way that I want, see me in the way, like can I even in those situations find ways to give better than is deserved? And then our final value as a church, and I, I know it's hard because I don't have visuals. I'm getting ready to have a giant thing right here that we're going to have to set up every morning. Um, but I'm also not a graphic designer. It takes me like 10 times as long to design anything. Um, but our, our last value as a church is friendship. So I truly, truly believe that the church is built on friendship. I think this was Paul's primary evangelistic strategy. And I'm not being like, I know sometimes you guys call me like, progressive and like that's not like it's not because of that like I genuinely think that Paul's evangelistic strategy in his New Testament as he planted churches was to build them on friendship he was to build them on this group of people who genuinely cared about each other wanted to do life together wanted to go get sunburned at the beach together like wanted to go out for drinks after church together like wanted to grab food like he was building a church he was building his idea was building a church off of friendship And at Restore, I want to say we want to pursue friendship, which is pursuing the good of one another through these affectionate friendships built on vulnerability and curiosity. Which I think vulnerability and curiosity are the hallmarks of humility. Because you cannot turn someone into an enemy that you stay curious about or vulnerable towards. It's much harder to. And so when Jesus is talking about all of this submitting to the human ones, submitting to the other humans so that they can kill him, when the disciples get into this argument with one another over who is the greatest, I think this is the gospel working itself out in the lives of the followers, Jesus' followers right here. And Jesus saying, this is the gospel. It is the surrendering of status and the submission even to those who it feels counterintuitive to submit to for their good, for their sakes. And when we can figure out how to like really adopt that vulnerability, something beautiful happens. I think churches that spend time managing statuses, like it's a waste of time. I think the thing that really builds trust among one another, builds trust among us, isn't perfection and it isn't image. It's vulnerability. We have a church of people that can be honest about where you are. Like That's the kind of church I want us to be. I get together with the staff and the volunteers. We pray every Sunday before you guys get here. And I told them this morning, I was like, I just, I need to confess Like, I just feel like a huge hypocrite this morning. Like, I'm so angry with God right now. And like, get up and they're like, talk about like, God loves you. Like, I'm so angry with some of the things that he's allowed. I'm so angry at some of the ways that I feel like he stayed silent. Like, I'm so angry sometimes and I don't know what to do with that. And I feel like a hypocrite, like coming here and preaching, but like Sunday comes whether I want it to or not. And so I have to. And so like, there's this wrestling with of like, where are you, God? 
And the thing that I realized as I wrestled with that, as I prayed about that, even this morning as I drove the truck and hooked it up the trailer and all this morning, is a big part of like where I get angry with God is that, like God, like you should have worked this out better. You should have done this for me here. Like there's this like, here, here I am. You're not loving in the way that I thought you would. You're not doing the things that I thought you would. Like I'm, I'm still like, here's my status and I'm upset and I'm angry with it. Why haven't you done more for it? And I realized so often that so much of that anger and that like, disappointment and that wrestling with God that we have comes into this question of like, am I, am I the greatest? Like, where do I fit in the social standings? Why don't I have more? Why aren't God, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't these people treating me better? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think the path towards actually freedom from that, that path towards freedom from self-preoccupation, the freedom from self-loathing, the freedom from being perpetual victims in our life, the freedom from hatred and just resentment towards one another, is how much we can go and wrestle with Jesus and be honest about this question. How much we can do that with one another. Um, so I'm I'm obsessed uh, with the Navy SEALs, which is weird because I'm I'm a Christian pacifist. That's fine. Like I know there's lots of different views on that. Like that's my view, but I am obsessed with the Navy SEALs because I'm obsessed with this group of people that like will not abandon each other no matter the cost. Like they do not quit on each other. There's something about that in church planning. I felt like there's a correlation there. Like they're like just you do not give up. And so I've been reading a bunch of leadership books by different officers in the SEALs, and, and there was one who was, who was an instructor, and he said, you know, when we are training new recruits, right, so we, we're bringing these people in, bringing this for the lead organization where, like, it just, like, you would, you would think that, like, we're looking for invincibility. But he's like, that's a terrible measure of a successful SEAL team. The candidates that can't, like, appear invincible are never the can't, they're always the ones that wash. What we look for is vulnerability. When we find vulnerability, when we can teach them that they need one another, that they cannot do it without one another, we build a successful SEAL team. So ironically, like even in like what you would think is like the most headstrong organization in the world where nobody should be showing any kind of, like everybody should be invincible and able to take everything they can like at face value that comes their way, like the first thing they do is teach them, you need one another. You cannot do this on your own. You might have been the best swimmer in your high school. You might have been the best athlete at your school. But now you're in a place where you need the people next to you. You cannot do this on your own. Which is exactly the message that Jesus is sending here. He's talking about the human one who's getting ready to submit to other humans. Like there's need, there's vulnerability in him and how he's loving So finally, Jesus is sitting down. He calls the 12 and he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Okay, so the, the word servant, it's, word we, we get de- it's the Greek word, it's the word we get deacon from, which is ironically a word they use to describe the early leaders in the church, servants. Must be least and a servant of all. I want to argue this morning that I think this is the primary Christian ethic, the pinnacle of, of Mark's gospel. 
being a Christian is actually seeking for and, and longing for and looking for like downward mobility. Like how can I and humility and curiosity and vulnerability submit myself for the good of others, pursue the good of others, even my enemies? I think this is counterintuitive to everything, almost everything we learn in Western American culture. We don't take a job unless we know there's upward mobility. And when we realize there's not, we leave that job. Right? Even in our marriages, oftentimes, our primary question when we're dating somebody or getting ready to get married or even after we're married is, does this person make me happy? And I'm not shaming us, by the way. Like I just, I'm, what I'm trying to point out is like this upward mobility idea is deeply ingrained in our culture in ways that we may not even realize it's seeped into our hearts. Am I getting what I need in this space? Am I getting what I need out of this small group? Am I getting what I need out of this relationship? Am I getting what I need from work? Like, where is my future? And is it going to send me on this, like, is it going to send me where I want to be? And I think those are right and good questions. Like, don't take a dead-end job. Like, well, I'm downward mobility. It's a Christian thing to do. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Find a job that, like, where you get rewarded and, and, and are, your efforts are honored and it's a good career path for you. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm simply trying to imply is that oftentimes deeply ingrained with us is the ethic of upward mobility. But deeply ingrained within Jesus is downward mobility. This God who becomes human, who becomes frail, who submits to his enemies, who's meek and gentle, who just tells his disciples, this is how I'm going to love you. And the very next thing they do is start getting into an argument with each other about who's the greatest. You see, humility, I think, is the path towards real love. It's the path towards freedom. It's the path towards freedom from our self-preoccupations that drive us crazy. It's the path towards loving the way that Jesus does. It's the path towards being committed to the good of those around us, even the ones we don't like, or even the ones that bother us, or even the ones that become our enemies or see us differently. This is, I believe, the primary way of Jesus that he's inviting us into as his followers. Mark's putting it right here in the middle of his gospel because the crucifixion's coming. He wants us and he wants his disciples to see what the crucifixion means. It's the stooping of God, the submission of God, the vulnerability of God back to his own creation those who will nail him to the cross eventually are his own creation. Like he fashioned them, he named them, he knows how many hairs are on their heads and they're the ones turning him into like and crucifying him. And there's real humility and love in this. Resurrection is coming, right? Victory is coming. But that victory comes not through violence, it doesn't come through coercion, it doesn't come through power came through this meek submission of the Son of God on the cross. As he became unoccupied with himself and instead gave himself up for others. This is the love that Jesus is calling you into. This is the love that he wants to love you with. So when you meet him someday, the response isn't like, look at all the ways you didn't honor me. I think it's going to be, look at all the ways I gave myself up for you. I'm so glad that you're here. I love you. 
And yeah, you cling to some really unhealthy things and like through my submission, like help to free you from some of that, like free you from some of the guilt, free you from some of the shame that you carry. I'm so glad that you're here, child. You see the ways in humility that I've loved you and longed for you and sought after you and submitted to you to bring you here to this moment. This is the kind of love that Jesus loves us with. This is the kind of love that I want us as a church to have for one another. Let me pray for us and we'll close this morning. Father, we need you. Um, we need you so desperately, um, especially in moments like these and sermons like these. God, we got to admit that each one of us are preoccupied with ourselves in different kinds of ways. And it gets destructive for us. We alienate people because of it. We struggle in our marriages sometimes because of it. We struggle with parenting because of it. So, Father, would you free us from our self-preoccupation? Would you free us from the burden of always constantly having to manage our status? From always feeling like, got to make sure I'm on top. I've got to make sure I'm not less than. I've got to make sure I'm viewed this way or seen this way or earn approval in this way. For some of us, Jesus is exhausting. We've spent our life running and running and running and every mistake we make leads us to hating ourselves more, hiding ourselves more, being defensive more, feeling more ashamed. But if we let go of all that, we can trust your love that you have for us. Jesus, we'd find some freedom. So would you help us? Would you help me? Would you heal the resentments in our heart? Would you heal the shame? Would you heal our hard-heartedness? Would you help us to trust your humility, Jesus? Help us to be like you, to be humble, to pursue one another like you do. Um, and vulnerability and curiosity, what were you talking about on the road? Inviting us constantly to share even the parts of our life we don't really want to talk to you about. Or we're afraid to admit, go on in our heart. We need you, Jesus. We love you. We pray all of these things in your name.